0: I'm Lisa Smith Henderson, your host for Alma, Am I Racist? If you want to know more about how the podcast Alma, Am I Racist came to be and the wonderful woman who is or was Alma, the spirit of Alma lives on. Go to almamiracist.com. In each episode, we endeavor to learn more about racism and how to be better allies and advocates and also how to become anti-racist pro-black. Today, my guest is the well known Dr. Rodney Sadler. He graduated from Howard University, went on to get a master's there, and then went on to get a PhD at Duke University as if that wasn't enough. He's currently the director of the Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also an associate professor of Bible there. He's considered an expert on matters of race, and he's an activist for social justice. So I'm really glad to have today Dr. Rodney Sadler. Dr. Sadler, can you talk to us a little bit about Reparations, reconciliation, and your work.
1: So there, there are two different things that you might be talking about. One is the Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation, which is a, a center that is run out of my seminary that focuses on how to uh, deal with issues of social justice as for students and faculty and for our larger clergy body and religious leaders in the city of Charlotte. Uh, and the other is the. Reimagine America Project, Truth, Reconciliation, and Atonement Commission for Charlotte. So uh, two basic projects uh, with which I'm working that have reconciliation in the title. So.
0: But were you involved in the reparations piece?
1: We're focusing on larger issues of atonement and not just reparations. And what I mean by that is we have a great, uh, several great groups. And one is the Transformative Justice Charlotte, which is a great group that has been working on reparations. They've been working on putting together, I think, a $225 million fund here in Charlotte that will be utilized by the African-American community to help develop economic opportunity for people, entrepreneurship, and to help people do other things that deal with uh, employment and things of that nature. So that's one group that's here in Charlotte that's at work, and actually one of several groups that are working on reparations is a larger theme. What the Reimagine America Project... Truth Reconciliation Atonement Commission for Charlotte does is we're not really thinking about reparations. We're thinking that in essence there is much more that it harm that's been caused by the issue of race than just a simple financial number might be able to solve. In essence, if we are to solve the problem of race in Charlotte, in North Carolina, in the United States, we have to look at a much more holistic way of doing so. In part we need to examine every system that's at play in our society and we have to begin to change those systems to make them more just more fair and more equitable and that means that we really do have to do more than just provide let's say a pool of money from which people could draw. We have to look at the way that just the identity that people have makes them subject to a stops and a disparate abuse by police officers. We have to think about the way that education has been manifest in the country in ways that have hindered African-Americans from thriving. We have to look at the way that employment tends to work. For African-Americans, even at this day, make less than, I think, 70% on the dollar of their white counterpart and that they have wealth that is uh, one-tenth of the average white American. There's so much more that goes on in society than any amount of money could solve. And one of the quick things that I say right now is that if you gave every black American enough money to be a Kardashian right now, it still wouldn't stop an African-American from being shot by a police officer. It still wouldn't stop an African-American from uh, necessarily being more susceptible to things like corona, it still would not change the day-to-day realities of people because there's so much that goes on in the society that has so much more to do with every system that's in our society is arrayed against black and brown bodies. And we have to begin to address that. How do we begin to change those systems to be more fair and more just and more equitable?
0: That's a great overview. Let's just take one piece of that and tell me what that would look like. So let's just take the, well, I mean, it's a bit, very big piece, but the criminal justice system, whether it's policing or incarceration, what would that look like in reimagining that?
1: If we reimagine the criminal justice system, and let me give you some context on this. We actually had our first hearing yesterday with the Truth Reconciliation and Atonement Commission. And What we ended up talking about was policing and the criminal justice system. So these ideas are fresh on my mind. What it would look like is that we would have to begin to do serious deep dives on the metric. How are African-Americans impacted by the criminal justice system? Why is it that African-Americans and white Americans commit crimes at precisely the same rate, yet African-Americans are incarcerated at four times the rate of their white counterparts? What is the byproduct of giving African-Americans criminal records And not just criminal records, but often felony records. And what does that do to shape their lives? How has things like uh, uh, not allowing felons to vote in certain states been a means of voter disenfranchisement and a means of keeping the black vote from being more prevalent? Most people don't know that policing in the United States of America started off with groups that were used to capture, quote unquote, fugitive slaves. And these fugitive slave groups were what gave rise to local police departments in the country. So there's an inherent bias that exists in policing against black and brown bodies. Policing in America has been targeted at controlling, quote-unquote, wild blackness. How do we keep the blacks in order? How do we limit the chaos created by black bodies in the larger community? And this is one of the things that we have to attend to as we look at the way that police even function today.
0: Do you think on some sort of cellular level, this is still ingrained, even if it's never been discussed? And somehow it's in the DNA of the police force, the white police force, that really we're here to capture slaves?
1: I'd say that this is in part the essence of what's in the policing system in the US. I wouldn't say it at a genetic level. I would say at Mm -hmm. a, that it is endemic to policing. Uh, The worst part about it though, is it's unexamined. Uh, It's part of the way that we police. And part of the things that we think that police should be doing is protecting America from the dangers of blackness. And people don't tend to pay attention to what's going on. I would go even further to say, that it's in part because we have developed stereotypes about black and brown people, that they are wild, that they are dangerous, that they are prone to criminality. Uh, It's in part because we've developed these stereotypes that we've used to essentialize people. We see these manifestations among police officers. Police officers aren't necessarily bad people or doing bad things in and of themselves. It's just that they're part of a larger system that has been developed along racial lines. And because it's been developed along racial lines, it is inherently unjust. And that's what we need to examine. How do we take away that racial content from the nature of policing? How do we help people, uh, police officers to see that every human being uh, should be treated equally and no one should be given either special treatment or disparately uh, poor treatment by the police?
0: So all of this is great in theory. When you had your hearing yesterday, did you present this as a theory or did you give some concrete ideas? And if so, what are those concrete ideas?
1: So uh, when we had the hearing yesterday, we were literally listening to people whose lives had been impacted. We had two gentlemen who spoke who were both African-American males who'd been incarcerated, spend a great deal of time Uh, in prison. And they talked about the difficulties of living in a system of incarceration. For example, they talked about the fact that they didn't have adequate representation in the court system before they went in. So one of the things that we would suggest is that people need to have fair court representation, public defenders that won't just ask them to take plea deals, but that will fight for their rights. Another thing that they talked about was opportunity for divergent programs when they were incarcerated early on. So that one of the things that we might recommend is that we have greater opportunities for social service programs that might help to change the course of people's lives early on. Another thing they talked about is the fact that they did not have mentors in their lives that might help them out. So that might be another recommendation of where we need to go. These two gentlemen that we had yesterday have both since they've come out of prison, worked with the police, and developed mentoring programs that have been highly at helping young men make different choice going forward. So it's these kinds of things that we can begin to look at and say, what might the system do to be less disadvantageous for black and brown people? Then we also have to look at larger, dare I say, um, implicit biases that exist among police officers. Why is it that you look at a black person that you tend to think that they're more prone to criminality? Where did the police officer come from? What is their background? So for example, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. In Charlotte, North Carolina, has a population that's roughly about 40%, a little over 40% African-American. We have a police force that has less than 20% African-American police officers. So in essence, we have a great racial imbalance with policing based upon the representation of people in the city. As we look at the city of Charlotte, you say, well, where did most of the police officers come from? The majority of police officers in Charlotte aren't Charlotte residents, or at least five or 10 years ago, they weren't before they put a requirement in that we need to make sure that we're hiring more people locally. What that means is we tend to hire people who are from rural uh, rural areas. They tend to be white and they tend to have a very different understanding of the black and brown population of the city of Charlotte. So uh, we should not be surprised when we find that there are great disparities, different understandings of race and difference, and that people don't have A familial or a kinship kind of connection to black and brown folks because they come from an uh, an environment where black and brown folks seem to be quite different and are treated quite differently in their context. So all of these factors suggest that we need to make significant changes in this larger system if we are to make a more just and more fair system for black and brown folks going forward.
0: Okay so within that piece, and I'm not crazy about the term defund the police, But I do like the idea of taking money that could be better spent instead of using the police as military to find people that could help. Uh, Substance abuse being one of the biggest ones and mental illness. Can you speak to that just a little bit? I
1: would love to. I'm a firm advocate for defunding the police however you mean that term. In the first term, I think the concept of defunding the police does not really mean that we're taking money away from the police officers. What it means is that we're trying to reallocate funds. So we have a system uh, in the United States, for example. uh, Let me just again speak to the city of Charlotte. I think a good portion, I think up to 70% of the city budget uh, is focused into the police department. Uh, Goes to not just pay salaries, but supplies and all sorts of things for the police department. I think most of us would be utterly stunned if we look at our city's budget to find out how much of this is targeted at policing. So in part, we are giving just too much money to police officers and policing in general. In recent years, a lot of this money has been diverted to focus on things like the militarization of our police department, buying tanks and buying automatic weapons and buying things that we really don't want to have used in our community, tactical equipment, that's better used for war zones than for patrolling city streets. In part, the militarization of police, which has been funded by these extraordinarily high budgets, also is associated with an ideology that we are patrolling to protect our city from the city's enemies. We've turned citizens of our city into enemies that we are going to war against, as opposed to recognizing that everyone in our city is equally a citizen and equally worthy of protection. Uh, in a racialized society, the black and brown other is automatically the enemy. It's automatically the one that will be targeted by, these, uh, by this attention. So I think, in part, the concept of defunding the police says you've got to stop utilizing this excess resource to fund the militarization of police, is used to turn black and brown citizens into enemies. So that's one part of defunding the police. But I think the clearest understanding of what defunding the police means is that We need to reallocate assets, so instead of having more money that goes into paying for police officers to uh, ride through the cities in cars and arrest people or whatever, we need to be able to pay for, let's say, people like social workers. If you go out on a call for domestic dispute, instead of turning to a gun, you might rather talk about counseling or try to support change within that family structure. Someone who can help analyze that and diagnose what needs to be done, what helps might be useful, would be more important than having a police officer there. When people have mental health crises, it doesn't necessarily help to send a man with a gun there if someone's already in the midst of crisis. That exacerbates the issue. But if you could send someone out to deal with these people who has a greater understanding of what their concerns are, what their needs are, and could have a better opportunity to de-escalate and escalate the situation, that would be infinitely more helpful. In part, this is what defunding the police means. It's talking about a reallocation of assets to make it more effective in serving the needs of the larger community.
0: Well, and it also seems to me by focusing on riot gear and SWAT programs and all that, you feed into this militarization and this whole concept of war as opposed to protection.
1: Uh, that's exactly right. You. Turn the the black and brown citizens of your inner city communities into the enemies that you're trying to defeat, as opposed to helping to see that these are just people with needs. Um, Many of the needs are mental health issues, mental health crises, just concerns about family. And if we think about them in this way, if we not only intensively criminalize them, but we think about them as inherently other, dangerous, prone to criminality, we treat them differently. And that's what we have to attend to. How do we begin to change the way that we treat our people by moving away from a militarization, a militarized way of viewing them?
0: How have the city and police leaders been? Have they been receptive to this kind of
1: talk? Actually, in our city, there's been a lot of talk recently, and we found that the police department has been incredibly receptive. For example, last night in our initial hearing, we had a former assistant chief of police come and speak to us and give us some insights into uh, what kinds of change that she'd like to see, what kinds of changes that we think we need to make in order to move forward as a city. Uh, So I think that the police department is very receptive. In the aftermath of the George Floyd uprisings, I think police departments across the country are starting to look at ways of changing their image of engaging with the community in more active and effective ways of making sure that they do particular outreach into the African-American community, uh, and then changing some of the tactics and the practices that have been found particularly harmful, i.e. things like chokeholds, which have led to death, uh, the use of force, when is use of force entitled and when should it not be utilized, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there's already a move towards reform among police officers and police departments so, I think that there are many of them are already interested in the conversation that we're trying to foster.
0: Switching back to the reconciliation piece and the atonement piece, I've been very curious about what that would look like for especially African American men who were imprisoned during the crack ep- epidemic. And could their sentences be reduced? Could they be offered treatment? Uh, Is there anything along those lines?
1: I think that that would be an, an inevitable part of this conversation, how do we handle how do we handle the incarcerated population I'm a, an incredible proponent of ending mass incarceration of freeing many of these people who were locked up on charges. The penalties were escalated at a much higher rate so for example, most of us know this example that crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine uh, you could get a sentence that was a hundred times more harsh for the same amount of actual weight of crack cocaine than powdered cocaine, and that this became a way of sentencing people that never mentioned race, but because white people were more prone to use and sell powdered cocaine and black people were more prone to use and sell crack cocaine, the penalties, even though they never mentioned race, ended up being racially disparate uh, in the end. And it's things like this that need to be addressed. It's things like this that we need to begin to move beyond if we are to uh, have a more just system. So amen, I would say that we do need to release many of the people who've been incarcerated for far too many years for minor drug offenses. I'd also say that another concern besides crack cocaine would be the issue of marijuana. Uh, if you think about the way that marijuana has been adjudicated in society, we realize that marijuana, in many states, is legal. It's many states, you can access marijuana uh, with relative ease, and it's, you go to California, you go to Colorado, and it's not only legal, but it's it's something that you can sell and make a considerable amount of money legally, therefore. But we incarcerate people in other states for this. Black men, by and large, are going to jail for selling small amounts of marijuana. And if we could begin to recognize the problematic nature of incarceration based upon marijuana use, we might be able to recognize that uh, that can be legal in one state. Why are we incarcerating people uh, and developing this carceral state around marijuana in other places? We need to move beyond that. We need to shift the way that we're focusing on incarceration in this regard.
0: Do you think um, I will live to see marijuana be legalized?
1: I think not only will you live long enough, I think it's going to happen in the next five or so years. I think it won't even be that long before. Marijuana is a a legal substance across America. I don't believe that these regulations will last much longer. If you see the way that it's not only been utilized in places like recently in in Denver, Colorado and seen the way that was done. I was recently in Los Angeles and seen the way that functions there. If you see the way that it works also to stimulate the economy, to provide different businesses uh, and fit within the larger economic framework of the community, it's only going to be a matter of time that people recognize Uh, Not just the fact that there are beneficial uses to marijuana, Uh, it can help to alleviate crises that we don't need to turn to big pharma for. But in addition to that, city leaders are going to start to recognize, state leaders are going to start to recognize there's great earning potential here, and we're missing out on what other states have been able to benefit from. We're missing out on taxing this and finding the benefits of that for our local communities. So I believe that it's going to change sooner rather than later.
0: I so hope you're right. To me, alcohol is a much more dangerous drug. And I think we forget that alcohol is a drug because it's so enculturated as something social and normal. And so, if we're going to do that, then let's treat, you know, when I would hear people say marijuana is a gateway drug, I'm like, no, alcohol is the gateway drug. So, let's make this all equal. And wouldn't that be great if we had that money to go to reparations?
1: And I say this as one who does not use marijuana. Uh, I'm not a marijuana user, so I don't have any invested interest in this, but I believe that the harm of criminalizing it outweighs any potential damage that making it legal would bring about in society. Alcohol is far more dangerous. We see far more accidents as a result of it, issues of uh, cirrhosis of the liver. I I heard someone, it was a comedian, say this the other day. uh, Where have you ever heard of someone dying of a marijuana overdose?
0: Exactly. Yes. I mean, it definitely can be addictive. There's no question. I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict myself. And Mm -hmm. I was around, I was part of the powdered cocaine generation. And Uh I tell you, none of my friends that ever got arrested, not one of them spent any time in prison. Yes. Because they all had good legal help. And the same, I had family members and friends who had big marijuana enterprises. They got time in country
1: club prisons. Exactly. And I'd go a step further. Uh, we had one of, the, one of the witnesses that testified last night was a white former Republican judge from Charlotte who testified about the fact that not only is the ability to have a good lawyer and all this thing working in your favor, but even when all things are equal in the criminal justice system, the sentences for Black people are different than those for whites. And he talked about his own coming to grips with this as he looked out of the courtroom and saw two individuals, one was black, one was white, same age, uh, both young men uh, with great histories and great futures, grade A students who'd gotten involved in the crime. But the recommendation for sentencing for the white person was uh, he could go home, he could have access to school, let's try to get him back to the work. The recommendation for the black kid was, let's put him in a detention center. Let's keep, uh, keep hold of him so that he doesn't get, get out. And this was made by the same people. The same people were making decisions about a black kid and a white kid involved in the exact same case for the exact same crime, but the sentences were different. And he looked at that, this judge looked at that and said, there must be something going on. And then he looked at the entirety of the way that a sentencing was done in his own system. And he found that across the board, this was the reality. Black children were given much higher sentences than white children were in his juvenile court. And then he began to look at the larger court system and say, oh, this is taking place with adults as well. Uh, And then he developed something called Race Matters for Juvenile Justice and brought in people from all the different systems that were impacting the criminal justice system to begin to say, we need to change. Let's look at the way that race has influenced us, and let's see if we can find something better going forward. So I think this is the kind of thing that we need to do across our systems and to recognize that uh, it's not just the fact that white people have better access to lawyers, which does help. It's not just the fact that white folks have uh, greater social networks, which does help. It's not just the fact that white folks have greater social capital, which also helps. It's also the fact that because of whiteness, there's a different sense of privilege ascribed.
0: God bless that judge for seeing that and acting on it.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: So- I thank you so much for your time. I really want to have you back because there are a gazillion more questions that I have for you along these and many other lines. So will you come back and join us again?
1: I will certainly do so. I look forward to it.
0: Our guest today, Dr. Rodney Sadler, who's got a PhD from Duke University and teaches at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is also an activist in racial matters all over the country. We're very grateful to Dr. Sadler for his time today. If you'd like to know more about Alma Am I Racist, you can go to almamiracist.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week.